Welcome back everyone. In this conversation, I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Michelle Lincoln, the Executive Dean of Health at the University of Canberra. Michelle has an extensive career researching the attraction and retention of allied health workers in rural and indigenous communities. We talk here about that research, some of the challenges, and in particular the idea of the need to socialise professionals into communities and how that impacts the way that services are accessed and the nature of the service that is then delivered. Over to a conversation with Michelle. Michelle, welcome to our conversations. Hi, Phil. It's great to be here. Michelle, you've uh, done a fair bit of work in allied health in rural areas and the attraction of professionals. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that, that you've done in that space? Sure. Um, my research has focused on exploring the nexus between uh, allied health service delivery and allied health uh, workforce recruitment and retention in rural and remote communities. Um, and I've had a particular focus on sort of medium to small communities and Aboriginal communities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, and the, the, the okay. premise of that really is that... Um, Without a workforce, you can't deliver services. Yes, it's uh, somewhat fundamental, isn't it? It's, uh, Absolutely. It's uh, one thing that keeps popping up is that notion of these communities as places for professionals to live. Do you do you mm -hmm. find a lot of the professionals aren't attracted to work in these communities? Um, so, for the health workforce, the best known predictor of someone working in a rural community is that they're from a rural community. So we know that if we recruit students from rural backgrounds into health programs, they're more likely to return and work in a rural community. Um, the next biggest predictor is if they've had a positive extended placement in a rural okay. community. Um, and then there's sort, of, there's sort of a third group of people who go to work in rural communities, and I always think of them as people that were never going to stay. They've gone there for a year or two to get some experience, to have some adventure potentially, but always we're gonna gravitate back to a metro um, area where their family and connections might be. Okay. Um, are, is there many of those, do you think, that last category? Yeah, I think there's lots of those. Okay. <laughs> and one of the reasons why, um, as I move around rural Australia, I hear a lot about problems with retention. Yep. And they invest in these uh, often new graduates to support their professional development, to um, socialise them into the community, and then they leave. And I would argue to them that no matter what they did, they were never going to stay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? We have very similar issues in the education sector and retention being, being a big issue. And I think those predictors you mentioned would work across the various professions. We, um, we have trouble attracting teachers in the first place because they don't meet the requirements to get into university nowadays with the uh, teacher education requirements. Is there any, any problem in attracting people from rural areas into the, the professional training? Um, yes, although I don't probably think it's as uh, difficult as in education, actually. So there's the issue of um, reasonably high ATAR entry scores that can be a barrier, although most universities will have rural entry schemes. I think it's more... Uh, about getting people excited about careers in health. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows what a physio does um, because that's a well-known profession, but 
many people know about occupational therapy, for example, or speech pathology. And if you live in a community where those services are infrequent or missing, then you're unlikely to think about that as a health career. And so uh, getting a spread across all of the health professional groups in terms of recruitment is a challenge. Okay. It's, um, I think when I did some staffing work years ago, and one of the issues that, that came up from various departments was exactly that third category you mentioned, the, uh, the people who were never going to stay. If they, if they could staff schools with people who were there for an adventure, then they wouldn't have much of a problem. But uh, they're there for the adventure rather than the work was the, the view of these staffing officials. And I was quite surprised yeah. how widespread that was. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, what our research would show is that really there's not much you can do to keep those people. They're always going to go. Um, what we've found uh, in our research is that there are some um, retention. So retention and recruitment are very different. You know, the factors that bring someone in terms of recruitment are different from retention. But in retention, it's um, we talk about modifiable factors and non-modifiable factors. And so the things that you can control in someone's work environment uh, that promote retention are things like autonomy. Um, and in health, that's the freedom to make decisions in the best interests with and for your clients and patients. Um, because if people feel like they're effective in the work they're doing, they're more likely to be retained. Um, workload, uh, so that's around access to relief so that they can have time off and time away. Um, access to professional development um, is another important retention factor for people. Uh, and then there's a whole lot of sort of non-modifiable things like, you know, connection to the community, um, family connections, the actual environment itself and whether it's a pleasant place to live, a whole lot of things that actually um, uh, a health employer has little control over, I guess. That's, um, that's again, a, a range of similarities there with, with our sector that you, you mentioned there. Um, those mm. ones particularly okay. around the sort of, and we've tried cash incentives, we've tried transfer rights. There's a pretty reasonable deal to go and work in the country at the moment, but still not. Mm. Still jobs are vacant everywhere. I've just been out on some, some trips in the country and about to head out again, and every school I go to, they do you know anyone who wants to come work? So it's a real yeah. ongoing issue. Yeah, yeah. I often, I often feel for the, the people who are staying, you know, that are committed to that community or to that town, and they go through this cycle of supporting and inducting and developing um, new health professionals who then leave. And they experience that as, as a really personal failure on their part. And, of course, it's not at all. Mm. Uh, it, it's the nature of the system, I think. Yeah. Interesting in health, one of the other um, factors around retention was how much travel people had to do. So often health professionals will work in a hub-and-spoke model where they're going out to more remote communities. And if people have to be away from home for more than two nights a month, that is, that is a factor that will push them out of their job. Interesting. Okay. Mm. See, I can see... So um, the, sorry, go on. Yeah, so the adventure wears off is my message in that. And also, <laughs> if, you, if you try to develop social connectedness and you join the netball team or the cricket team or something else and you have to be away for work, then that undoes that. Because you're not taking part, no. Because you're away, yeah. yeah. Interesting, because I'm not aware of any work in education that looks at those sort of variables. So uh, maybe there's an idea there. Um, mm. I think that notion of and that, that notion of autonomy, I find really interesting. It's one that um, some of us are particularly interested in with 
how teachers contextualize their work but the, mm. the, the professional architecture is very standardized so the notion of autonomy is a, is a challenging one for the profession as a whole and i think there's something in that yeah. for, for rural context how they are incorporated in that architecture that's certainly something i think yeah. we need to talk more about yeah yeah and so for health professionals they'll talk about um policies that aren't rural proofed mm. <laughs> they're policies made in a, in a metro context that don't work in their rural community and so they either follow the policies and are ineffective or they break the rules which is more likely <laughs> and you know put themselves in an uncomfortable position yeah, it's um, that's interesting. I, I, we don't want to encourage that sort of behaviour, but I can think of some of my own work where um, the teachers who were following the rules had a sort of rather dissatisfied in their language, but the ones who were doing things that were making a difference were really positive in their language, but they felt as though they were doing something slightly subversive. So that's mm. doing really good work. You're being professional, professional autonomy. You're doing what good practice looks like, but you feel as though you're being um, uh, breaking the rules. But you're so far yes. enough away that you're not you're not observed as much. Yeah. <laughs> that is so similar. That's really absolutely what the health professionals would say too. Yeah, that's and interesting, I, isn't it? It is, and I, I love the way you use the word there—the the phrase "rural proof." Um, I'm thinking of that work by Sally Shortall and Margaret, Margaret Olson and others around rural proofing policy. And uh, mm. I'm, I'm going to be working with some principals in the far west next week, actually, around policies and that very notion. So it'll be uh, interesting to see what comes in that respect. Because they tell me when I visit them, these things don't work here. But uh, so we mm. want to get a bigger handle on that. Yeah, we heard the same things, exactly the same yeah. things. Mm. Interesting. But the centre is on hearing it when so many practitioners are in the various professions are using this sort of notion. It's quite... Mm. Any, can you account for that from your experience? Um, so I think it's being heard a little bit. Certainly um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme um, has a rural and remote strategy. So I think they heard the need for it. Um, the strategy is probably not quite right. Um, but there's, there, you know, I, I think it's a matter of um, people like you and I actually um, and senior leaders in the professions uh, really standing up for that over and over and over again. Okay, so you're, you're, so you're, uh, you're putting it back on to us to make sure we do that work. <laughs> yep, that's research translation, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's part of our role and responsibility of the privileges that we, we have that come with it. With, yeah, me too. We visit these places. I'm, I'm really interested that you've come there a couple of times in what we've talked about, to talk about the community socialising the professional into that community or um, mm. preparing them to uh, integrate into the community. This is something that's come up in a couple of conversations about professions in general. Um, mm. I was talking in the last discussion with um, Lizzie Shenaworth from Griffith around the need to build trust in communities and social um, social services. So why is that notion of socialising into communities so important? We, we don't think of it that way. At least I don't think we think of it that way in the city. No, I don't think we do at all. Um, so there's a distinction, I think. There is that in order to retain health professionals, um, they will eventually need to make social connections within that community. So friendships, um, relationships, um, a sense of belonging um, and a contribution to the place. So I think that's one aspect of it around promoting retention. The other side of that in terms of service delivery 
certainly in the work that I've done with um, my research team has done with Aboriginal communities, uh, in particular, it's that um, trust aspect is hugely important and that it takes time to form relationships and for people to trust um, health services. Um, and they, what Aboriginal people say, is it has to start from the health professional wanting to understand their culture and their community before you can even have a conversation about health. Yep. Um, and again, that takes time and that takes um, repeated engagement consistently over time. So the, the fly in, fly out, different person every time kind of model is just not going to be appropriate. Okay, cut it. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting for us, often the way that that gets mediated actually is through someone in the school. Okay. So the, uh, might be the principal, but it might be a teacher or a teacher's aide or um, Aboriginal liaison officer who is the guide for the health professional who comes into the community on a, you know, infrequent basis or it might be infrequent or consistent basis. But if they work via someone in the community who is known and trusted, then you'll get much better traction. But schools have a, um, and teachers have a really important role to play in health in that way. I think this is something we probably... Uh, need to look at leveraging more across the professions is that interconnection mm. between those disciplines because they, there is that, that reliance both as the service site but also that, that uh, advocate, I guess. Mm. That's right. Um, it sounds like we're writing up a research agenda. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that notion, I just want to keep coming back to this notion of the differences with rural, rural professions. There's a much more transactional approach in, in larger centres where you go and see your specialist and you're there for the specialist service or that mm. particular knowledge. But it's really the case in these contexts that the, the relationship comes before the specialist service. So I could be really have to be sick, but the extent to which I reveal the, the breadth of my symptoms or their history is going to be limited by how much I have a connection with the service provider. That's how I understand this operating. Is that, is that for you about right? Uh... I think trauma, I think that, of course, being separate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think that that varies for individuals um, and their own personal experiences, um, perhaps level of education, amount of interaction with the health system. You know, I know, for example, that some people uh, find um, telehealth delivery of health services absolutely fine. And, you know, they, they they think it's amazing and it's great and it can really meet their needs, whereas other people will struggle with that um, because they believe the gold standard is a face-to-face -face relationship with someone. And so I think it's, I think it's pretty variable, actually. Um, okay. And to some extent, it's playing into the stereotypes of what rural communities are like, and I think there's an enormous diversity of people who live in rural communities. Um, and... You know, we would we would train our health students to take a person-centred approach, and so to to meet the person wherever they're at. Okay, how how do you uh, probably hard to answer in a short in, a, in an answer? But how do you train someone to take a person-centred approach? Just... Yes, so you train them first of all to listen. It's the most important thing to actually really listen to what the person is telling you about what's important to them about their life about what they want to achieve, about how they, what their hope is for their health or the child's health if it's a, a, a young person, um, and work from there. So instead of coming in as a professional with all the answers, you actually 
start by listening and then you um, tailor your suggestions and answers to the person and their needs and you collaborate around making a decision about what's going to happen from there. Uh, an approach that you think would be that uh, seems sensible right across the board, doesn't it? Yeah, meets their needs, is consistent with what the evidence, the scientific evidence about what works mm. um, and, and go from there. What about um, approaches to overcome some of these challenges in getting professionals? What sort of things have been, have been tried? Yes, yeah, so um, I think people have tried all kinds of things in retention and I would argue that to date um, it's not been nuanced enough, hasn't been thought about as in these three different groups of people and actually the retention strategies should be different and I would suggest that you wouldn't really invest much in those people that were never going to stay. Um, and you plan for the fact that they're going to turn over. Um, we should stop being surprised when they leave <laughs> and just plan for the fact that that will happen. Um, so unlike the medical workforce, where there's been quite a lot of research around what works, there has been less in allied health um, and a bit more in nursing, but not a huge amount. So there's not a lot we know, actually. Okay. In terms of service delivery, um, the reality is, for health professionals, they um, can choose where they live uh, and work. Uh, and teachers can do that too, but most teachers who, I guess, teach in a school in a community would live in that community or nearby. Um, whereas for health professionals, they can live in Dubbo and do outreach services to Burke. You know, so it's a bit of a different entity. So really it's about models of service delivery that might work. And so I'll go back to where I talked about um, having a local person that you work with and through. Um, that might be an allied health assistant, teacher's aide, teacher, parent, volunteer, uh, elder, um, you know, finding the person in the community that that person has a connection with and has the capacity to help. Um, telehealth uh, is another option. Um, building community capacity, um, particularly in, dis in the disability space to um, include and support a person with a disability to participate in community life. Um, so there's a range of different models um, that have varying levels of evidence. But so, for example, in um, psychology and speech pathology, the evidence base for telehealth is very strong. Um, we know you can get really good outcomes by delivering services via telehealth. Cool. And, and access to the technology is, is pretty good? Access to, sorry, what was that for? To the, to the technology is, is good. Yeah, look, um, my research um, uses Zoom and Skype. Like we're <laughs> using tech. Zoom now. <laughs> Absolutely. Low tech that everybody can get access to. Yeah. Um, there, there, may, there are sometimes problems with, um, you know, connectivity. Yep. Uh, but I find, actually, people in rural areas are very tolerant of that. They'll just go, oh, I'll just bring you back. Yep. <laughs> we'll try again. We'll try again, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's... Uh, it's a frustration, but not a barrier. It's probably a way to put it, I think. And I guess it's, um, it's better than the alternative. So they can see yeah. the, the, the evolution of that. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, do you think these, these sort of services, uh, are they just for rural areas or are they, are they for um, people that are, are homebound or, or not as mobile uh, in the community in general? Yes. Um, I think that it has application for a range of people, not only rural and remote people. Um, at the moment, um, you, there's only a very select group of allied health services that can be funded through Medicare. 
um, for health delivery, um, psychology being one of them, but not physio, speech pathology, OT. So yep. you can't claim it on Medicare. Uh, some health funds allow you to claim, most don't. Uh, and the, and the NDI, NDIS actually funds telehealth delivery. So it's a bit of a mess, really, about what people can get access to funding for. Um, and that's a barrier for people both in the metro and the, um, and the rural areas. I often think of people in Sydney who might spend 45 minutes in traffic to get to a clinic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they'd love to do some telehealth. Yeah, indeed. Or moving between specialists when you get, you tend to have that, that um, cross-service care in some smaller locations. So Yeah. It's, um, I, I ask that because it, it's uh, the distance ed issue in education is one that um, often I, I, I find rather ponderous because most distance ed kids are in the city who have been excluded from school or have other, other issues at 90% of them. But mm. the ones in the country where the, the response is, well, they can do the studies by distance ed, it's like, well, okay, that might be a stopgap, but is it a solution? Because if it's a solution, mm. then it should be equally applicable to the kids in the city. So yes. just the, the logic of the arguments I find interesting sometimes. Yeah, it's about equity, isn't it? It is, and how we understand that. Yeah. Equity isn't yeah. just access, it's the quality of the service. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But, so that's interesting in health too. I, I, you know, I was saying before, some people um, view telehealth as second best, hmm. if I can get. Um, whereas the evidence suggests for some people at least, you know, there's a parity in outcomes. But again, it's about what um, an individual believes and thinks. Hmm. And people in metro areas have choice. Uh, often in the rural area, you don't have any choice. Yeah. Um, Michelle, the last thing I'll ask you about is um, that notion of growing your own in rural areas. I know you've um, been doing a little bit of work in that, in that space. Can you tell us a little bit about that growing your own approach? Because I think it's something other services can learn a lot from. Um. So are you thinking about the Aboriginal Allied Health Assistance Bill? Is that what that's, that's one of them that I think you yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was fortunate enough to be involved in a um, program through the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health that funded and supported uh, Aboriginal people from rural and remote communities to train as allied health assistants. And it was this idea of building the capacity in a community to have someone there who could help with the itinerant health professionals that came in and out to coordinate services, uh, follow up, deliver programs, et cetera. And uh, our hope with that though, um, was not only to um, build the capacity in, in communities, but also that some of those people would eventually go on to university and um, qualify as health professionals. And um, a small number are on that path, uh, but more of them have stayed in their community. Uh, and yeah. and are making a really valuable contribution there. Actually, yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the other thing is is really around recruiting rural students, which I'm sure the strategies are pretty similar to what you use in education. Yeah, we try with the um, the the focus on quality in education and putting in certain benchmarks to gain access uh, has had perverse impacts of making rural kids ineligible to uh, mm. to study. So it's a real it's a dilemma. But they grow your own approach and uh, really interesting because there's so many teaching assistants. Often they will be local Aboriginal community members yeah. who are working in schools. They've worked there for 30 years. Yeah. So mm. what if we could work with developing the skills and capacities and roles of those people through 
various forms of professional growth that they eventually become the teacher that they really essentially are because <laughs> the, yeah. the new the new teachers sort of adjusting and learning how to do their things so they're often straight out of uni anyway and new to the community and all those sort of things so it's really the assistants that are often the teacher by default yeah. so um, <laughs> yeah. it, just, it just seems an opportunity there which i think we can learn yeah. a lot from that sort of work that you've been uh, referring to yeah. uh, michelle I'll, thank you for your time today i think i've taken enough of your time for our for our conversation so um you're very welcome. And that is where I'll leave our conversation with Michelle. I think we're getting a really consistent theme here about the distinct nature of practice in rural places. Now, we talked a lot about the HR components, the resourcing and provision of uh, housing and so forth, and people who just aren't going to stay. So that's one focus. But that notion coming up through a lot of these conversations now about what it is to work in these places. That's something we really want to ponder more. So we're going to be focusing on that in a bit more detail in subsequent podcasts. Until then, we'll leave you to it.